You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Oh, I think that means we get to get started. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all here today. Good morning to the onlineers. Can you guys just reach back and say hey to those who are streaming? Good morning. Good to see you all here today. My name's Susan, I'm part of the Orion team. And this is a really great message. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Drew Daniels is here today, and he's gonna be talking to us during the Reveal series about some of the things that we think are in the Bible that may or may not be. I don't wanna, do, I don't wanna spoil what he's gonna say. So it's a really solid message, and I'm looking forward to you hearing it. Hey, I'm gonna update you on three quick things. One, we have a K-Kids event coming up on the 27th where we're gonna all meet together, carve some pumpkins, hear a great message, play some Halloween games, kind of, and just really have some time of community. So if you're available that night, we would love to have you sign up and come for that. Second thing is we have our wild retreat, which is for our middle schoolers and high schoolers. This year, the theme is fearless. They're heading up to Spring Hill on Halloween weekend. They're all gonna get together. They're gonna hear a really solid message and they're gonna play some Fear Factor games, I guess, because that's what they do. Ella, are you going? Oh, Ella's going. So, I mean, the worship will probably be super fire if she's gonna be there. So if you have a middle schooler or a high schooler, we would love for you to consider signing up for that wild retreat. All right, you guys, today we actually, I'm gonna tell you really quick about Thanksgiving baskets though. Thanksgiving baskets, believe it or not, you guys, it's right around the corner. And this year we are hoping, we're actually planning to deliver 1,500 baskets, which should feed and support about 8,000 people. And we've done this for 27 years here. It is a tradition of ours. It's been a privilege to do it. And it is the true opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So there's two things that you need to know. One, if you're really busy, but you have 50 bucks and you wanna contribute, buy a basket. Two, if you're not super busy and have time to go deliver them, go deliver a basket. Or if you wanna do both, you are totally allowed to do that. There's Loris out in the lobby in front of the Thanksgiving basket that you'll see, and you can ask her any questions, sign up, do whatever you need to do. So I think today what I've enjoyed most is we started out a little bit differently. So we have the privilege of singing a song together and letting it wash over us called Make Room. And in this song, God reveals his gracious and extraordinary love and desire to connect with us. And when we take that time, when we take that time of surrender, we have a moment with the Lord that is unparalleled because what we find is that he was in control anyway. So please take a moment and just sing this song, enjoy it, let it wash over you, and so happy that you're here.
the words of that song make me think so much of Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus, as he enters the scene in the ancient world, there are some people who are religious elite who are bordering forces about how people should live. They were pious, they believed they were holy, and they kept religion alive. Religion says that there are rules that you need to obey in order to earn favor with the divine. And Jesus comes in and is labeled a friend of sinners, someone who's willing to associate himself with people who are not pious or holy, with tax collectors, prostitutes. And in fact, he says, I came to seek and save that which was lost, not for those who are healthy or are already found. So in the process, this, this, these lyrics are so meaningful for some of us who maybe we entered into Kensington this morning or at some point in our lives, and we believe that we would get judged or we would catch on fire by even stepping foot into a church because of our past or our shame. And this is the nature of Jesus, that he's a welcoming, invitational God who, who invites the people who don't believe they have any seat at the table to be with him. And that this is the Jesus way, the way that says that he has come to eliminate the barriers of shame, to eliminate the structures and the borders that would keep people from being able to experience and participate in his grace and his goodness and in his love. Does anybody believe that in here? Can we get a round of applause for a Jesus who believes? Oh, we're gonna go there, aren't we? We're gonna preach it up in here. I, I, I felt the cue. But, but I, I really believe this with all my being. And if you're, if you're joining us here, we're in a collection of talks that's called Reveal which simply is examining some of the misconceptions that we have about the Bible. And today specifically, if you're joining us, the misconception is that there is a saying in the Bible that says, God helps those who help themselves. Now you'd be surprised that roughly 50 to 80% of people strongly agree that that's in there somewhere when the truth is it is nowhere to be found. So why don't you go ahead, grab a seat, and take a look at this video that helps us examine where we got this idea from. Check this out. All right, I'm gonna say a phrase. Let's see if this sounds familiar to you. God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard it? I bet you have. Now, where in the Bible can we find this phrase? L let's see, maybe it's in the Old Testament. I'm sure Moses, David, Abraham, or one of the lesser known prophets would have said this. Nothing? Okay, let's try the New Testament. I'm sure Paul said this in one of his great teachings or letters. Or maybe Jesus himself said this in one of his sermons or when he was having one of those tough conversations with his disciples. Having a hard time finding it? Okay, maybe if we do a Google search, it will show us where in the Bible this phrase shows up. Still no luck? That's weird. If it's not in the Bible, then where in the world did this popular phrase come from? Back to Google. I mean, where else do we go for information? If you were to type in, God helps those who help themselves, one of the first people to show up is, believe it or not, Benjamin Franklin. The same Benjamin Franklin who helped draft the Declaration of Independence, invented the lightning rod, bifocals, and swim fins, yes, swim fins, is credited for this popular phrase. Ben Franklin, under the pseudonym of Richard Saunders, published the first infamous Poor Richard's Almanac in 1733. In the 1757 edition, we find this often used phrase and the context in which it was used, taxes. But Ben, poor Richard isn't the first person to use this phrase, shame on you. If you were to really nerd out and do some deeper diving, you would find that Aesop, a Greek storyteller who died in 564 BC, 
used this phrase in his fable, Hercules and the Wagoner, a story about a wagoner whose heavy load was stuck in the mud and cried out to Hercules for help. Here is Hercules' response. Get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them who help themselves. Side note, this was around the same time that Daniel found himself in a lion's den. I wonder how Daniel would have taken this advice being thrown in a dark pit surrounded by starving lions. Come on, Daniel, what's wrong with you? Do your part. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So. God helps those who help themselves is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Nowhere. But some polls say that 82% of Americans believe it's an actual Bible verse. So how has this phrase shaped our culture? And what does the Bible actually say about God helping us? All right, a little bit of honesty hour. Who in here maybe at some point had heard that phrase before? Okay. Who thought maybe it was in the Bible? Maybe, just maybe? Okay, thank you. Wow, a little more honest than the 9 a.m. service? I'll tell God that you all deserve more points, as if that's a thing. But either way, I'm not going to lie. I, I think at some point in my life, I maybe thought that that was in there as well. And so, to, I mean, today we're examining some of these misconceptions, these ideas that maybe weren't there and how, how they inform and affect our life. And today I'm looking at a very specific tension, a tension that I believe affects all of our lives in fact, maybe you've never thought of it in this way before, um, but it's the idea of when do we release control to God and when do we take ownership over our lives? When do we give it all to God and then when do we take responsibility? Does anybody have maybe like a, a Christian or a Jesus follower in your life who just says, you know, you just got to give it all to God? Anybody? Anybody who hears say that? It's always like a mom who has a hard Michigan accent, got to give it all to God. Like, it's just like, it's so cliche in our area. All of it to say, um, we've heard this before. And for some of us, it's like, oh, you know, that I needed to hear that this morning. Others of, of us, and you'll shortly hear from my story, it's the least comforting phrase you could ever hear, especially if you have experiences and pain that uh, tell you otherwise. But before we go there, I just want to pause for a moment and receive our offering and literally just say thank you for your continued generosity. Um, this moment is really designed that if you desire to participate in the movement of Kensington and all the work we do locally and globally, um, again, talking about help today, the idea that we love to help our, our, our neighbors and surroundings. And as you give, that's what you're giving towards. And so there's some, a couple easy ways to give. You can give on our website, set up recurring giving. That's what my wife and I do. I tell you what, I have a terrible memory. And, uh, you know, and those, it's, it's all, always that temptation to be like, I don't know if I want to, I don't know, maybe I can forgo it this week. So we've kind of set up a system in our life that does it for us. Or you can give on our app in less than 10 seconds. Um, and finally, you can actually text the word Kensington in your phone to the message number 77977. It'll spit a link out at you. And if that, again, if you call Kensington home and you want to participate in all the things that God is doing around uh, through us and in us um, locally and globally. Well, again, we're addressing this tension. And uh, I, I, just to, to really start us off, I want to tell you a story. About two years ago, my mom and I were going to Michael's, the store. And as we were leaving, it was dead cold, and it was like negative two, negative three degrees. And so we got to the car quickly, and you know the whole thing when Michigan winters, you just got to drive the car in order for the heat to really kick in. So I was kind of in a rush. I get in the car, I check the rearview mirror, and I slowly take my foot off the brakes, and I'm literally inching backwards when I just hear a pounding on my trunk. And I turn around, and there's a guy who's yelling at me saying, hey! That's my kid. That's my kid. Totally shocked. Apparently, this kid had escaped their leash and darted right in front of my car. 
And I had no clue. I was completely shocked. And I, I, t- I look at my mom and, and this guy, he finds his way around the car and it was like in his eyes, he believed that I was intentionally not paying attention and was trying to be a reckless, irresponsible driver, which it was just, again, a slow, again, I'm justifying, I feel like I'm in, I'm in a court of law, like I'm, I'm giving my witness testimony right now. Like just a slow little, like little release on the brake and inching backwards. And this guy, the thing was, he was unrelenting. So he, he moved towards my car and he looked me straight in the eyes as if he wanted to provoke like a fight. And I was so shocked for two reasons. The first reason is that it made me not trust my reality. Like I literally had checked and it kind of created a little bit of PTSD going forward into the future of saying like, I don't know if I'm, if I'm actually seeing things correctly. I have bad eyesight problems. I play a lot of golf. I lose a lot of my balls because I just don't experience reality correctly apparently. I don't pay attention to my surroundings. I'm just apparently this guy. The second thing is that it created a lot of fear inside of me that every time I backed up, I was afraid that I wasn't gonna see something. And I kid you not, for weeks or months after, I would constantly double check before I would even proceed forward. It would be like midnight in a dark parking lot. I'd be with my wife and I'd be like, hold on, gotta make sure there's no roaming children. She'd be like, Drew, not this again. I'd be like, Natalie, it's always gonna be about this. And what's interesting is to make this kind of silly comparison for a moment, that a lot of times our God pain is a lot like a rear view mirror where it's such a small reflection that looks to the past, but oftentimes if we're so caught up in our God pain, right? He didn't change my husband. He didn't heal my mother. He didn't protect my child. He didn't answer my prayers. He didn't speak to me when I cried out. He didn't give me the outcome after pursuing him purely. Is that when we experience these moments of disappointment and pain, it's almost as if it kind of makes a stutter step before we can proceed forward. And we're completely ignoring and neglecting the large window of the future that God wants us to proceed forward into. Now, the thing is, is is this is a really small mirror, but it's interesting how these small moments can have profound impacts and profound consequences for us. And this is the tension that we want to sit in today, is that for somewhere maybe in our lives, maybe some, of, maybe some of you not, there is a time where God did not. God did not. He disappointed. My life was robbed from me. My whole view of him changed because of a situation and a circumstance. And so the question and the tension that we want to address is when is God in control and when are you in control? When is God in control of something and when are you in control of something? And before I even go forward, I wanna pause and just acknowledge that today may be a little challenging for some of us and my, my, my goal is not to create a problem that you've never thought of before. My goal is to have us think carefully through a reality that you are most likely going to experience. That some of us maybe we have a trusting, beautiful relationship with God, and we maybe don't question a lot of things around us. And then there's a lot of others of us who have tons of questions and tons of doubts, and we don't want to proceed forward. And then we use verses like Romans 8:28 that says, Well, God works together all things for the good of those who love him. And we use it as a band-aid over a deep wound that requires a lot more surgery and healing. 
And we're ignoring and neglecting the actual pain and the wound of our God pain. And for some of us, maybe we have this beautiful faith, but, but what I want to do today is I want to approach this question in advance because I, sometimes when we process something in advance, it allows us to shape how we experience it if it is in our future. In fact, Jesus, he says that there will be trouble in this life. And if, you know, the older you get, statistically, mathematically, you're just going to experience suffering and pain in this life. And so today's, today's t- uh, message is not to answer the question, why does God allow suffering? That's for Craig McGlasson in two Sundays. So you can email him all those questions. Um, but all of it to say, today's simply addressing the question of when is it my responsibility and when am I going to release it to God? I remember exactly where I was when I became an agnostic. I was walking north on Collingwood, past Grand River, and I had a panic attack that overwhelmed my nervous system because I believed that none of this was real and that God was no longer real anymore. And I began to hyperventilate for the only time, first time in my life. And I walked and I called my girlfriend who was actually my now wife at the time and I never said a word about why. And the reason why I never said a word is because the deep levels of shame that could possibly come from having that be a confession in my life after serving God faithfully for eight years, reading all of the theology books, diving into the apologetic intellectual questions, and coming out the other side, having an overwhelming feeling that science maybe could explain every single thing about faith, that all of the experiences I'd ever gathered that appeared to be miraculous could also somehow be explained. And in fact, before this event in my life, I had gone through a, a time in my college where I, I was just so desperate to, to, to experience God, to have him be accessible, to have him talk and speak audibly to me. I just gave myself into this intense emotional version of faith where I prayed louder, I prayed longer, I jumped higher, I summoned emotion that wasn't there. I mean, I pressed in, I would wake up early. It was like my whole, I mean, it's like I had given my life to Jesus and I was going to intensely press in so that I could summon God's voice somehow with all of my works. Not that I was trying to do it that way, but what else do you do when you're so desperate to hear God's voice? And maybe for some of us, this is where we are. We're seeking, we're pressing in, and we cannot find him. We cannot hear his voice, and we don't understand why he wouldn't speak to us in this way. And even more for me, I was at Michigan State, and I had taken some Bible courses that had begun to question the authority and some of the reliability of the scriptures. And it's not that I disagreed, and I, you know, it's not that I agreed fully with it. It's that I understood it. It's that I, I sympathized with some of the ways that maybe some atheists would think, and it presented a problem for me of saying, oh my gosh, I, I have compassion for people who maybe intellectually or even emotionally struggle with it, because guess what? If I'm honest with myself, that's where I'm landing right now. And it came to a point where after all this exhaustion, all of this tiredness, all of these intellectual questions that just could not be answered for me personally, is that I, I could not help but confess a truth. Conf- confess a truth that felt, whether it was truth logically or capital T truth in the universe, or it was just my emotional experience in the moment. The problem was I had no idea which one it was. And then to proceed forward at a time in my life when I'm 21, 
And, I'm, and I was currently leading in ministry because for my whole high school and college life, I had neglected the pathways of sin. I didn't do all of the things you do. I went to Michigan State and had blinders on like a horse. I did this. I, didn't, I couldn't look around. Like, I was going to live on the straight and narrow with God so that he would reward me with his presence and ultimately the rich life. Have you ever obeyed God to get a payoff without knowing it and then never get it? Again, I, I recognize some of us are like, whoa, man, you clearly have some issues because that's not how I think about it. And that's okay. But maybe you can relate to the underpinning emotion of it. Maybe you can relate to that feeling of saying, no, I, I've definitely cried out for God in some seasons of my life and I've, I haven't gotten anything. For me, the level of shame of having to be in ministry have to lead people and not even believe it or have a deep secret that people would judge me because here's the thing, my belonging was in my identity and my holiness and all this obedience that I had done. It was in the presentation that I gave to the world, but it was also pure of heart. And what I even struggled with deeper was the fact that it was a pure pursuit of just the good things of who Jesus was and who God was. And he rewarded me with making me lose faith. It was like a total, it was like a tragic car accident that wasn't my fault, but God himself allowed it for some reason. Because that's the payoff you get when you live your life for him, right? And maybe some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, of course, I wanna make it clear I intellectually, over time, made a faith decision to say, God, I'm gonna choose you as savior, and I, I reconstructed and put some things back together, but I'm gonna be honest. The emotion of that pain never left me for years. The deep emotion, and guess what? You ever have an issue or questions in your life, and those questions give you questions? Those questions give you babies and grandbabies of questions, anybody? Because then you see a, new, a nuance of it. You see a different side of it that you hadn't seen before that becomes even more troubling and more challenging. And my thing was, is this my fault? Is it all my fault? Is God teaching me something or is he testing me to see if I will be faithful? Is he teaching me because I didn't learn something? For some of us, I, I do believe that God sometimes teaches us stuff, but, but isn't that... Maybe a little bit cruel if you are in the middle of suffering to feel, for some of us who feel that way. I sure felt that, right? So when it comes to the idea that God helps those who help themselves, maybe that becomes comforting when we experience some God pain. Because at least it feels good to have all of the control for once. At least I don't have to be disappointed by God anymore. At least I can let God off the hook. At least I can believe for a smaller version of who God is because I believed before and I don't want my heart to be broken again. There's a story in the Old Testament of, of the Shunammite woman and Elisha, a prophet, says, you're gonna have a son and she, she says, do not deceive me, do not get my hopes up. Sure enough, she has a son and he dies at five years old in the heat of the day and she goes, didn't I tell you? I didn't ask for this. For some of us, hope hurts. Hope hurts because it's waking up pain, right? It's kind of like when you go into surgery and you become numb and then out of it you feel all that pain because you're finally beginning to feel again. That's our emotions. You turn all of them off. You can't feel anything. You turn the valve back on, believing that God could, believing that he should, and all of a sudden you're waking up to all of these wounds that you never addressed that actually made you go numb in the first place. And there's still those incisions and it might even be affected. What's yours? 
And we ask this question, is it my fault? What is my responsibility in this? Am I supposed to find my own healing? For me, that was my question. Am I supposed to, to, to rescue myself or do I wait for God to rescue me in this situation? Do I just give it all to God? Or do I actually press in and seek my own answers out in the process? See, does God help those who help themselves? Because if, I mean, for, for the longest time I helped myself and I didn't even get what I wanted. In fact, what do you tell the early Christians who died for the faith in Hebrews chapter 12? who they spread the message of the gospel and their payoff was to get killed and sawn in two. Right, I think there's some parts of even the Bible that anticipate that we will suffer in this life and that it's a part of life. And if we're honest and unfortunately, the New Testament does not do a good job of explaining why we suffer again. You can email Craig this and you can actually help him do a sermon prep by emailing some of your questions in advance. Sorry, Craig, love you, buddy. But in the process, what we look in scripture and what I hope that we can uh, investigate is what we do find. And what I think we can look at is the person of Jesus, because, you know, if we're Jesus followers, and this is something I love, I heard and I love, is that, you know, if you predict and pull off your own death and resurrection, I can just trust whatever you say, right? Okay, so we're on the same page that Jesus did that. So, So if he resurrects from the dead and he claims that he and the Father are one, that he is the image and the invisible expression of God the Father, that when I look at Jesus, I actually see the demonstration of an invisible heavenly Father and I see it through his actions. And so I wanna look at what Jesus says. He says this in Matthew chapter 26. It says that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to become sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not as I will, but as you will. This is a popular story that maybe you've heard, maybe you've brushed over it. You go, okay, I see where you're going with this, Drew. But I actually want to point out some pretty confusing parts of the scripture if Jesus is, in fact, the God who we we think and we say that he is and we claim that he is. Because there's two things, first, that I also want to observe, is that, number one, Jesus asks for help, but he also accepts suffering. Because we ultimately know, and this is unsatisfying, that somewhere the answer is both that it's both my responsibility and it's God's responsibility. But we just maybe don't know when that is. But here we see Jesus participating in both. He says, God, please do something else about this. Please give me a different outcome. Yet he also says, I'm willing to do what you want and accept the suffering without any payoff or reward in the process. Now here, I want to paint what's at stake here a little bit before I even get into some of the other confusing aspects of this passage. Here's what's at stake. If we give everything over to God and we say, God, I release control to you, what ends up happening is some of us might be afraid that we're handing over personal responsibility of our life just to God, to to just not have to work. You you ever meet a person in your life who's just like, you know what, I'm just a blunt person. I'm going to tell you how it is. Anybody have that family member? Okay. I just like to tell it how it is. Sorry, that's just the way I am. You know what's really happening? Is that whenever we blame our personality, we say, I'm handing over personal responsibility to a label of my personality. So I don't have to change, and I know this isn't always, but I don't have to change or work or grow because this is just the way that things are for me and my experience and reality. And this is what happens with God. It's like, we don't want to just hand over responsibility 
I mean, there's things that Jesus asks of us. He asks us to, to lay down our agendas to follow him. The son of man doesn't have a, a place to rest his head, you know, lay down your treasures and you'll have to store up your treasures. Like there's things that he asks of us. And I don't want to just say, oh, like it's just up to God because then what if you missed the promotion because you just were too busy depending on God. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I worked all these years and, but then I gave it up to God and I didn't actually get what I wanted. That's a terrifying thought. Then the other side of it is, well, what if I take all of this control then some of us might be afraid that we're, we have a smaller picture of God. We're believing in him less to do a miracle. In fact, you might actually be missing out on the richness of him meeting you and showing up. You know, you asked, you, you sought, you knocked, but, be, but, but, but you don't get to partake in the joy of him answering because you took control yourself. We're taking away God's ability to do a miracle. And if we don't allow other people to help us, right, because maybe it's God wants to use other people we take away someone else's opportunity to, to minister or to love us in the process. So that's what's at stake for us in these tensions of saying, if, I'm, if I only go one way. You know, it was interesting. I actually talked to our Orient team about this, and everyone was like split down the middle of like, man, I think I, I, I struggle more with being in control, or man, I feel like it's all up to God. Like all of us are going to live in this. But again, I want to come back to this passage just for a moment. It's extremely confusing. Jesus talks about this cup. What is a cup anyways? I mean, what is this? I mean, maybe we've heard this and we just know it because religion says that there's this cup that Jesus has to drink. See, cup in ancient times, it was a symbol of punishment and of justice, right? So it, there was an honor-shame culture. I want you to think about kind of how, if you're a parent in the house, where there's kind of, we, we go by more guilt-innocence in America, but honor-shame is more like, my child is at a restaurant and making a scene. All of a sudden, now I feel like I'm personally experiencing dishonor. Or, the, you know, I have a teenager who's being rude to a house full of guests. Now I'm feeling personal dishonor. See, that's how they viewed God, is our behavior will bring honor or dishonor to God. Shame, embarrassment, or pride to this God. And so they were really concerned with it. But now we have an image of a God who's weak, who's crying out to his heavenly father. Not only this, the God who in the Old Testament seems to be listing things saying, hey, if you dishonor me, I'm gonna put you in a people that's not your own. I'm gonna inflict plagues on you that are worse than Egypt and even some things you don't know that I'm gonna do to you or I've not been recorded in the Bible, I'm going to do to you. Like this is in Deuteronomy and some of the list of curses. And we look at this and this is how God, people, they thought about God in this ancient time. But now in this picture of Jesus, when he's crying out, he's saying, Lord, take this cup from me. What's the implication? That now God, the father is the architect of his own son's suffering. And he proceeds forward. He says, if it's possible, take it away. So now we realize that it wasn't possible because Jesus had to drink this cup. So even, this is what, next is what's confusing. Even if you're perfect and sinless, your prayer requests are still gonna get denied. That even Jesus got denied of his, his self. And then he says, not as I will, but as you will, that Jesus had a preferred outcome. I mean, Jesus didn't wanna have to suffer the punishment. He didn't wanna have to suffer, suffer the separation. But it was his suffering that actually was the thing that would be healing to humanity. And I want you to bookmark that. And the final thing that's confusing is that Jesus tells humans that he needs help. He says, I want you to watch and pray because the Roman guards are headhunting and I need to be on guard and prepared for whenever this is going to happen. And he comes back and he says, please, why are you watching and praying? That even the son of man in all of this humanity asks his own people for help. Is it no surprising that when, when Jesus approaches in Matthew chapter 25, it, there's this passage where it says, he separates sheep from goats, and he says, you are my sheep. If you 
Because you saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me thirsty, you gave me water. You saw me naked and you clothed me. And you, you saw me in prison and you visited me. And then when, you know, when I was sick, you, you took care of me. And they're like, Jesus, that never happened. You know, what, are you sure that you're okay? I mean, you also said that you were greater than Moses too. Is this part of the whole bit? And he goes, no, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Is it no surprise that even if Jesus asked for help, that when we examine in the Bible that God clearly asks us to help other people as a part of the healing process? See, this is the whole point of the cross. The cross was never God's attempt to answer why do people suffer. He was never trying to intellectually reason. The New Testament never intellectually reasoned why people suffer so clearly. Rather, It's not that God is distanced from suffering, and this is what separates this God, who's the architect of his own son's suffering, from all the other ancient Near Eastern, Mesopotamian, Mediterranean world religions, that this would have been not the way to start a new religion. And it's that the founder was crucified as a state criminal on a Roman cross, publicly in embarrassment, not bringing shame, or sorry, not bringing honor to God the Father. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's not that Paul is embarrassed to tell his middle school friends about who Jesus is and that he loves them. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the fact that this is an embarrassing, shameful way to God to do. That in all of this, this God is different. That he does not try to sit back with arms crossed, distance from suffering. It's that he participates in suffering. See, what if maybe for us, We have to anticipate that we, too, just like Jesus, will suffer. But it's not about the suffering. It's about the healing. See, the cross's point was to heal humanity. And what if the point of our suffering is also to heal the humanity around us? Because I can't answer whether or not it was better for for us or you or me in my story. I blamed God for years saying, God, it would have been better had this never happened. And in some ways, I, I believe that, man, that was true because in the process, I lost so much confidence. I felt like I lost so much certainty. And then I had to, had to develop flexible thinking and hiding a little bit of some of my questions and embarrassments. Even though everything was good again, it didn't feel good again. But this God, he heals by helping And for those of us who think we only have to take control are missing the very point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that we could never help ourselves. Is that it says you cannot perform a good enough act of worship to earn God's favor. And in Ephesians, Paul, this very same person is writing this. He says this. He says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, the, the point of Jesus drinking that cup is that God had a justice system, a justice system, the similar way that our culture has developed, cancel culture, that when we see wrong, we need to cancel somebody. God needed to cancel sin. And the way to do this was to fully express it and realize it on his son, Jesus. That's why in Christianity, karma maybe doesn't make sense, that if I'm good, then God will give me things because Jesus was perfect and he got the worst punishment. This is the whole point of the gospel, is that it's not about your works. It's not about how much Bible reading. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about the insincerity of our our prayers or the length of them. It's actually about a deep connection to God, submitting our life to his lordship, and being able to say, Jesus, I trust you as the person who's rescued me, as the person who's helped me, as the one I, I placed my trust in, that God, you have controlled an outcome. You have helped humanity. And in the process, I have healing, because now that when you look at me as your 
your son. You do not see shame, even though I've given my life to you, even though I know I have doubts, even though I know I have struggles. Is that God, when you look at me, you see your son, Jesus. This is the great exchange. That when you look at me, you say, perfect, blameless, spotless son, I love you. I see the covering of Jesus on your life. That if you can't earn God's favor, you can't lose it either. Because it's not about what you did. It's not about how bad you messed up. It's not about your deep, dark secrets that God already knows and has seen in millions of souls across time. I hate to say it, but you're not special. And that's a beautiful thing because God's not surprised. Is that people just like you have experiences. And that's what I love when Paul says, is that it's the suffering of Jesus. I hope that I become like him in his suffering just so that I can have intimacy with him. That what if we reframe the, the, the moments of suffering to say, I don't know why, and again, talk to Craig in two weeks, but I don't know why, but in this, in this moment, I want to become like Jesus in my suffering. Specifically, for those of us who feel like we are devastated by not getting an answered prayer, we didn't get the audible voice, God didn't miraculously intervene. I want you to read this. If God doesn't help, God will heal you through someone's help because this is exactly the nature of the cross. It didn't prevent the suffering of mankind. God entered into the suffering of mankind. He's able to relate with us. In the same way that Jesus says, hungry, fed, thirsty, drink. Maybe in our context, maybe some of us have a lot of material things. Maybe our ability to help other, someone else heal is when you were sad, I held, I held space for you. When you had doubt, I had empathy. When you were devastated, I didn't judge you. When you felt like you lost and were robbed and ruined by God himself, I didn't fling a Bible verse at you to tell you that it should be okay. You know what I think is really happening in some of these moments? Is that when someone maybe flings a Bible verse at us or when we, we have the pressure or feeling to do this in the moment of someone suffering, I think part of it just says, I don't want to have to do the uncomfortable work of investigating what I think about God if he allowed you to go through that. I don't, I, I'm overwhelmed by maybe watching you hit the end of yourself. And so the way that I have to prevent myself from experiencing overwhelming emotions is just to say that God has a plan for you. What if we changed and reframed the idea of suffering to say that God participates and is with us in the suffering and that I can hold space for you too? That we can ask God for a different type of outcome, but we can also accept the fact that this is the hand that we were dealt. This is the reality, whether we want it to be or not. You know, the hardest part for me of my journey was accepting the fact that it happened. Just admitting that it happened and that it was true. There was a phrase that I finally came to years, a couple years later. Again, it all started 10 years ago. This might have been four years in that I finally admitted the truth emotionally that God had died when I was 21 and I never had learned to mourn my father and I never knew how to look at him in the same lens again because I felt betrayed emotionally. And I, I think about my wife, when I was dating her at the time, when I was 21, there was this deep sense of worry and fear because she was more of a experiencer of God, more emotional. And I was like, again, all intellectual, analytical. Maybe some of us are like this in the room. In the process, I, I didn't speak a word to her on the phone that day of a panic attack because I could never admit it. My worst fear is that I would take her down with me. I would dismantle her faith. She would judge me. She would feel trapped because I should have been a better man of God. I mean, oh man, this is how God pays me off with a husband. You know, when you're young, that's everything. It's just who you're gonna marry. 
and ultimately just being embarrassed that this happened to me and that I felt this way. And so I hid it. Even in years later, when I began a process that I realized that God had died for me, was I began to finally open up to her. And you know what's so funny about the healing process? Sometimes the things that we think are our chains are actually our freedom. Because I thought the fact that me and my wife had this difference, I thought that was the chains that would surround me for the rest of my life, that I would never be known, seen, cared for, loved, or understood, or, or anything. But it was actually that difference, that maybe it was God himself. Maybe this is what he was doing the whole time. But it was the fact that we had that difference that actually allowed for me to have healing. Maybe had she known the full weight of what I was saying. Because when I began to open up to her, she would go, oh, that's super interesting. I've never thought of it that way before. I was like, what? So hold on, you're not, you're not mad? She was like, why would I be mad? What do you mean when you say this? And I was like, well, I, if I'm honest and I'm you know, looking over my shoulder, well, I, I had thought this way and I had this thought and I was concerned with here and I was deeply afraid here and if I'm honest, I really didn't believe this about God and what he could do. And she was like, oh yeah, huh. Huh? What do you mean, huh? Aren't you gonna just become unraveled? No. What if the thing that you thought was chains was actually your freedom? Another part of my freedom was the fact that I belonged to this little church called Kensington. When I was in high school, I had this Bible study of guys and I had even said this where I'm like, man, I don't know if it's good if Kensington's around because you know, they don't preach the word. God's got a funny sense of humor, doesn't he? He doesn't get into, I mean, they don't really, they just care about making people feel really good there. And they don't maybe know the Bible intellectually the way that we do. And I used to judge it up, down, left, and right. But then when I got hired to do kids ministry and I felt all of this shame, and over time, I realized the thing that I loved about this little church called Kensington is that Kensington refused for people to experience shame inside of their walls. Just like a Jesus who walked the earth, who did not create shame around the people that he loved, Kensington said, I refuse to bully people into Christianity. I refuse to bully people into religion. I refuse to bully people into keeping tradition. I desire for people to experience and encounter God on their terms with where they are. And finally, the clincher was the resurrected Jesus. That the resurrected Jesus, that if he did this, that everything else could be okay because the claims that he makes about himself and the miracles that substantiate those claims can mean everything else somehow is held together, that he is the truest form and version of the word of God. And that in the process that even Jesus needed to die in order to have a resurrection, friend, I tell you today, you may have to die in order to have a resurrection, in order for you to participate in the richness of God, in order for you to taste and see that he's good, that you need to die. Does anybody believe in here that sometimes your healing comes in your own death? Sometimes it comes in the most unexpected way and maybe God won't give you the preferred outcome. Maybe he won't give you everything that he want, that you want. Maybe you're gonna spend years, and I mean years, in the middle of suffering. But even if God doesn't help, he heals when you get your help. He comes alive. And that God met me. God met me in a moment where even though I had everything figured out from a question, logic boy perspective, it was finally just one day talking to my wife on the couch where I said, man, I think, I think the only thing I could ever resolve is that he just wants me to choose him anyways. And she was like, yeah, that's true. 
And I was like, whoa. And it was like in that moment, the Lord spoke to me and said, oh, I've been waiting for you to get here this whole time. That at some level, I want to know the measure of your trust and faith in the mystery because you will never know intellectually. And that this whole thing is faith and partaking in a divine mystery and a dance that you will never be able to fully explain and understand. And I just wanna say this for someone in the room tonight, today. Sometimes all we have are our choices. You know, Dr. Phil actually said something really profound about this. He was being interviewed. He's like, you know, I don't actually believe we change people's lives in eight minutes on a show. I don't actually believe that. He goes, because problems are so complex. They have layers and histories and, and just so many things that are complicating it. But he goes, the one thing I do know is that oftentimes the solutions are simple. It's behavior change. And so even if you're just feeling like you need to take control of this, the one area I want you to encourage you of taking control in is just being faithful and diligent to do what you can do. Specifically, with asking for the help of God, with asking for the help of other people, with with choosing to, to show up and say, can you hold space for me? Can you not judge me? This is truly how I feel. Because the thing I love about the cross is the cross removes all of the shame, all of the fear, is that God provided the ultimate security by saying that all thoughts are welcome here. All opinions are welcome here. Because I love you. It's, it's my blood that paid the price, not your thinking, not, not your behavior. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's a free gift of God. And so for you today, I want you to maybe choose to release this to God. And so we're gonna go back into this song we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna declare with our hearts, maybe it's just you, between you and God silently, maybe it's you standing and singing, but maybe you have some entanglements from your past. Maybe you're kind of like this mirror and all you're doing is looking back at the ways that God, you thought God worked, where you said, man, he's, he's gonna shame me for thinking this way. He's not gonna love me if I admit this. He's not gonna embrace me if I confess this. But I wanna tell you, you can throw off all those traditions because God loves you so much that he died for us. Come on, we're gonna sing this out together for him to break the walls of the tradition, to break the walls of the religion, to break the walls that we're keeping aside of us in, to break the barriers of shame just like Jesus did, that he removed all of them so that we could have God. Let's sing this out.
wanted to symbolize maybe what's gonna begin to happen in some of us where we've tried to seek God out and get an answer, but right in this moment, we're gonna actually participate in communion. And if this is maybe something you don't feel comfortable with, there's no issue here, you do not have to take it. But it's a symbol of the body and the blood of Jesus where we say, man, I wanna become like you in your suffering and I wanna remember that it's your cross which was never the way to start a religion because of what it represented, that it's your cross that has actually set me free. It's a death in me that will set me free. And maybe for some of you, I want to, to encourage you to accept maybe the story that God's writing in your life, which is gonna be uncomfortable and hard because it's a truth you haven't wanted to admit, but it's, you have to go with that flow of what God is teaching and showing you in your life, no matter how uncomfortable it is. So we have some communion stations that whenever you feel ready, I want you to come up and grab stuff. We have gluten-free options as well. There's four stations, two in the back, one and two in the front. And I want you to participate on it by yourself. Whenever you wanna partake and eat and drink, please at your own leisure, I want you to experience an intimacy with God as we sing about running to Him and trusting Him just in relationship, that even if we can't get our outcome, we're gonna trust in a God whose love we're confident in.
I think um, there's something I said that I even want to just expound on because I think it hit me a little more profoundly as we're singing these words. It's the, 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 the idea that it's not just about us taking control because we want to get something. It's the fact that God transforms us when we go to him. It's like we love because he first loved us. It's not we love because I just am supposed to love him and I need to try to love. It, our love is response oriented. And so as we encounter and understand the deep, the depth and the width and the height and the breadth of the love of Jesus and the more that infiltrates our spirit and, and removes and cleanses us of, of us, of our shame, it's like the more that we respond in love and obedience and beauty to our heavenly father. So I wanna encourage you with that as we leave here today. Maybe for you, you feel like you still feel devastated and today just kind of shook you maybe a little bit or maybe it's just you've had a passing thought and you just need to process it out because it's beginning, maybe God's teaching you something. We have our prayer team that's gonna be down front. Please don't miss your opportunity to process something with somebody and, and receive an opportunity just even for prayer um, after service. And we would love for you, if you're a guest here, to stop by the hub, maybe to get involved or to ask some people about what this place is about. And finally, we would love to invite you back next Sunday as we continue our reveal series, Misconceptions About the Bible. Specifically, it is titled Hashtag Blessed, so you're not gonna wanna miss it. We'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.